Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 235 of the Fun with Cars Formula One podcast for coverage of the Monaco Grand Prix. Yes, the jewel in the crown from Monaco. I'm Robin Warner, and I am once again joined by the man some call the Monte Carlo Marathoner, Christopher Roche. Hi, Chris. Well, good day, Robin. How are you? Oh, I'm just splendid. I don't think there's any other words for it. Well, I think splendid is, is a good word, and um, splendid is also the status of Australian motorsport at, at this time. Oh, boy. Is it ever. Um, today, we are going to cover the sixth round of the Formula One Championship, as well as the sixth round of the IndyCar Series. If you're interested in the full schedules of four race series, of all four race series, and that's IndyCar, Formula One, IMSA, and World Endurance Championship, please go to funwithcars.com slash schedules. In Monaco, Daniel Ricciardo that won the race, uh, brilliant race result for him, and Sebastian Vettel finished second in the Ferrari. It was Lewis Hamilton in third, Kimi Raikkonen in fourth in the second Ferrari, Valtteri Bottas in the second Mercedes, Esteban Ocon finishing sixth in the Force India, strong result for him. Top Scuderia Toro Rosso Honda was Pierre Gasly in seventh. It's weird, I haven't mentioned any McLarens yet. Eighth place was Nico Hulkenberg in the Renault. Ninth place, Max Verstappen in the other Red Bull, uh, well behind his teammate that won, but there's a reason for that. We'll get into that during the discussion. Tenth place was the second Renault of Carlos Sainz Jr. Eleventh place, uh, Marcus Erickson in the Sauber. Twelfth place, Sergio Perez in the second Force India. Thirteenth place, the top Haas with Mr. Magnussen and... Oh, look at this. Top McLaren in 14th place, Stoffel Van Dorn. 15th place was Grosjean, uh, Romain Grosjean, who did Mr. Roche finish the race. 16th place was uh, the top Williams of Sergei Sorokin. 17th place is teammate Lance Stroll. 18th, 19th, and 20th place, excuse me, were all DNFs. Charles Leclerc, Brendan Hartley, and uh-oh, Fernando Alonso. Before we get into a discussion, we actually have something we haven't had in quite some time. I'm quite excited for this. Jamie Price was in Monaco, and he had something to share. Hello, everybody. It is Jamie Price. I am here walking along the harbor in Monaco. And after a stunning weekend of perfect blue skies and warm temperatures, we have a little bit of rain. And it is about 40 minutes till the start of the race. This is not expected. I'm currently walking along the harbor with a trash bag on my lens because I woke up this morning, looked at the weather, it said clear and um, overcast at worst. So I left my rain gear in the hotel like an amateur. And here I am walking along the harbor with a trash bag. But trash bags work just as well as, you know, those $200 lens covers that I use just you know one-time use type of thing but much cheaper still works great so we'll see how it does hopefully it doesn't actually rain because i would love to see daniel ricciardo win this and i think if it rains it kind of throws open throws open the the chances for anyone to win it um obviously you can't count lewis out can't count seb out can't count kimi out can't count anybody out really um so it should be really interesting but I would love to see Daniel Ricciardo win this. He's my favorite driver, if only because he has the best personality in the sport. He just actually cares what what happens to the sport, and he he's passionate, and he is always smiling, obviously. That's what he's best known for. But I would love to see him take this because it would be a, a proper celebration, not just you know like some of the other ones I've seen in the past where... You know, there's a fist pump and a jump off the car, and yeah, one Monaco. I think if if Danny Rick wins, we're going to see some really special stuff. So we'll see. Um, but Monaco is amazing, as always. It's still incredible to stand this close to the cars as they're zipping by at 170 miles an hour. You just never really get, get tired of it. Um, I was sitting at the Nouvelle Chicane yesterday, and one of the cars clipped the inside barrier with the left front tire, and it just goes to show that the precision that these guys have around here, because it was barely a nudge, 
but that's how close they're running to these barriers and it's it's really really amazing to watch and see in person and I know how lucky that we have it as photographers to have the access that we do but you know it's one of those races that you never really know what's going to happen until the checkered flag falls we've seen teams make mistakes cost Daniel Ricciardo a win here two years ago so I would love to see him kind of finally take that and and make good on on what happened that year but time will tell because I do not know the race result at this point I'm sure when you're recording this you obviously will know the race result so hopefully I'm shooting a Daniel Ricciardo celebration at the end of the day hope everyone is doing well lots of love from the Formula One paddock follow me on Instagram Facebook and Twitter if you like race car pictures at Jamie Price photo and I'll talk to you guys soon Uh, Always good to hear from Jamie. So, Chris, Monaco Grand Prix, what'd you think? Well, I love Monaco. It's it's, got to be uh, a race I go to see one day. And I think uh, everyone goes through the same love-hate type uh, relationship. You know, Jamie's comments about the thrill of watching F1 cars dance around the streets of Monaco. Most of us would probably like to see that. Uh, in person, of course, you're not going to get a race. We all know this. Anyone who's watched Formula One for more than like one race at Monaco knows it. there's no racing at Monaco. So you always have the joy of, oh, the cars are back at Monaco uh, Thursday, Saturday, and before the race. And then after 78 laps of interminable dullness, everyone goes, well, you can't race at Monaco. And everyone goes, well, yes, it's always been that way. <laughs> so you just live with it. You just enjoy enjoy the splendor and the thrill of watching these guys do what is quite farcical, really drive, you know, a thousand horsepower cars around, you know, a very small principality and just, um, you know, just enjoy that scene. Just don't expect any overtaking and don't expect any sort of racing and you'll be fine. Yeah, you, you have to take the good with the bad. I think that's uh, the only way to sum it up. But this year was particularly stodgy. I You know, we had this bizarre circumstance where uh, we had what is now called a hypersoft, which is softer than the ultrasoft, which is softer than the supersoft, which is softer than the soft. <laughs> that tire, despite its name slowed everyone down and made everyone more cautious because there is this weird middle ground between do you use up the tire and take a pit stop and risk losing positions because it's so notoriously hard to pass or is you just stick with this tire and nurse it to the end so that it can uh, last the distance and you can protect yourself and then that was compounded by the fact that Daniel Ricardo was down 160 horsepower So it was, through a bizarre set of circumstances, from the race itself, one of the most boring we've seen in a while. Yeah, I mean, track positions king at Monaco, you know, the pole position winner calls the shots. And, you know, normally in a a well-executed race, we'll probably win from pole. And uh, that's exactly what Daniel did. And he did a splendid job, despite uh, Renault's best efforts to stymie him. Um, He had, uh, he lost part of the... The Kerr system and was reputed to be 25% down on horsepower. And despite this, Vettel never even <laughs> had a look. So, you know, it, it is the case that if you have the sort of racing now that Daniel has, you're not going to get past at Monaco. You know where to place the car, which corners, you know, to, to defend, um, how to slow up your opponent so he doesn't get a run on you. You know, anyone who's a decent racer and who's watched Senna's Masterclass in 92, knows how to win at Monaco, even with a sick car. And, you know, I'm pleased for him. He, he was flawless. Compared to his teammate, he was he was quick in, in practice, set the car up well, dominated qualifying, never looked like losing pole, and never put a wheel wrong for 78 laps. You know, when, you're, when you are nursing a problem in a vehicle, it's easy to lose concentration and, you know, clip a barrier. We've seen, you know, even the greats, even, even Senna, you know, made a mistake and clipped a barrier and put himself out of a race-winning position. And Daniel didn't do that. So absolutely full marks for him. Totally deserves it. Whether the race was dull or exciting for you, it doesn't matter. It was, it was a splendid display of how to win at Monaco. And, you know, in sharp contrast to his teammate who who, who made the same error that he made a couple of years ago, which is, uh, you know, clipping the barrier on the second, chica- uh, second uh, exit of the uh, uh, pool complex. So... You know, astonishing mistakes. Six mistakes out of six for 
for Max. He's in. Um, he's under some pressure now. Well, and I agree with you that it was absolutely brilliant driving from Daniel Ricciardo, and it was fantastic to see him win, despite the lack of racing on track. The performance that he put in was a spectacle, and the emotion that he showed afterward was absolutely absolutely deserving. I find the racing in Monaco is generally better than most people think. They look and say, well, there's not much passing, and that's true. But there are a lot of really tense moments from the race because it's such a bizarre layout and such a compact principality where there's very little logical sense for a race to be held there. But it's just kind of this weird anomaly that's brilliant as a result. This year, there's just some of that spark was lost because in addition to all these things, the drivers effectively uniformly took a conservative track because of just a weird combination of conditions. We had a fastest lap from Max Verstappen who put on a second set of hypersofts because he had very little to lose. And that fastest lap was still more than four seconds off the pole time. And it's not like I expected the fastest lap to be on top of pole closer than that on such a short track. So it was just a bizarre turn of events. Yeah, I thought the complaining at the end by some of the drivers, including Lewis Hamilton, was overblown, honestly. I think, uh, you know, we've had five good races this season uh, out of six. It's been competitive. We've had three different winners or win twice in three different chassis. We've had some great overtaking uh, to me, it's a good season. It's a great season, actually. And I don't understand people who expect every F1 race to be this pass fest and, and you know, you're not going to know who's the winner to the last corner. It's just, that's just not been, that's not the sport. Go go watch IndyCar or NASCAR if you want, you know, constant passing. Formula One's never been that way. If you go back through the records, even, even to some of the golden eras, like the 60s, where you didn't have all the wings and, and the downforce issue wasn't there to prevent uh, cars following each other closely, you still see race results where people won by a lap. You know, I can't imagine that was that riveting. <laughs> I think Jackie Stewart once won at the Nürburgring by a lap. So that's like yeah. 16 miles ahead of everyone else. In the rain. And I think, yeah, over a <laughs> yeah. lap. Yeah. So Formula One's always been this, you know, it's a mixed bag. Sometimes you get these epic races and sometimes you don't. And someone dominates. It's just the way it is. And, I, and that's the purity of the sport. And I personally love Formula One for that. And I don't want it to be manufactured. I don't want, you know, we're already going down the path of DRS and other tricks to enable overtaking. Exactly. And, you know, you can, you can understand that to a degree. But ultimately, to suddenly start saying we should change the track layout at Monaco or force two pit stops. No, I'm sorry, that's going too far. Yeah, it wasn't the most riveting of races, but it was still interesting to see to see the race play out and who was going to do what and uh, to see whether, you know, the guy who deserved to win was going to win. And ultimately, um, you know, I thought I was certainly watched the 78 laps. I quite enjoyed it. I, I was quite curious by the commentary team. I don't know if you watched the ESPN feed, but Martin Brundle was advocating people pitting again. And, and I didn't understand why, because... I was actually praying that Lewis didn't stop again because as his team rightly called, he would have just lost two places. He would have lost his podium if he'd pitted again. He wouldn't have passed anyone, even on brand new set of uh, Hypers or the Supersofts. You know, they were talking about Botas being on the right tyre on the Supersofts. Well, what did it do for him? Nothing. He, he finished in the same place he started. It was almost completely irrelevant. Unless the tyres were going to wear out, uh, it wasn't going to mix up the order, and, and, uh, and they didn't. So they, everyone managed to nurse them to the end of the race, and that was that. I disagree with you. I, I think the problem is that the tires weren't soft enough, and they need more compounds. And I think they should... Hyper, hyper soft. No, <laughs> no, no, no. The they, should, uh, they should come out with exceedingly soft. <laughs> if that's not doing the trick, let's go ahead and get gratuitously soft. <laughs> it's just soft beyond measure. You don't understand it. Yeah. Or just go back to soft, hard, and medium and just recalibrate all the tire compounds to just normal terms. No, but there oh, you go. No, no, no. Hypersoft is... could become the hard tire, and then we could have two new grades of softer tires. How about that? No, no this is like, um, oh, shoot. I'm, rem- I'm forgetting the name of the movie, and this is pathetic. But the, you, need, you need the amp that goes to 11. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Christopher Guest and co. And the fact that I can't remember the name of the movie is really, uh, really a thorn in the side right now. But it was a good movie. It was in the 80s. And his aunt went to 11. And I think gratuitously soft is the way to get your amp to 11 in Formula One. Yeah, so, you know, it's Monaco, I, I think the point you're making is entirely valid. I do genuinely not entirely agree with you, um, partially because don't oversimplify IndyCar. IndyCar is a much simpler sport than Formula One in the sense that the teams are not manufacturers, but the racing is similar style. And I think IndyCar is a great package right now. But more to the point, I agree with you mostly that passing in Formula 1 is obviously something that we want. And it's part of the sport, but it's far from the only part of the sport. There's so much innovation and creativity and strategy that plays out in a Formula 1 race. And so many decisions being made based on predictions of other people's decisions that really becomes a fascinating drama of sorts to play out, and it just happens to play out with really beautiful, incredibly quick machinery and brave drivers. And I think, to me, that combination of things is really the allure of Formula One. It's like, what is the absolute possible possibility of achievement with you know enough money and enough innovation? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, Formula One's more than, for me, it's more than just about the race, and there's an awful lot going on. Uh, and the casual fan probably isn't picking up on that, and that's a shame. And you know, so hopefully the casual fans converted to a deeper fan by watching some of the more epic racing that we've had, like Daniel's win in China, which was uh, you know a, a race that was easier to get excited about. But um, but yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of interesting talking points I think throughout the Monaco weekend, and uh, and there were some you know interesting successes and some disastrous failures. I mean. You know, Interesting successes like Toro Rosso and disastrous failures like McLaren. You're right. Let's go over that. <laughs> Man. Well, I think we, if we're going to talk disasters, let's talk about Williams, who I think had one of their worst weekends on record. And Williams sad- is making me so sad. I mean, <laughs> well, it's just the whole thing. Well, hang on a second. I thought they were, they were looking good. I mean, there was Sorotkin. He was, he was quick in free practice. He wasn't bad in quality. He didn't quite make Q3, but he qualified 13th. Yeah, he was close. Uh, and he was far ahead of uh, Lance. And I was thinking, oh, well, this is promising. You know, Williams, at least on this track, seemed to be doing a bit better. And then, of course, they then made a colossal mistake by not getting his wheels on the car in time before the, the start of the race. So he got hit with a 10-second stop go, which ruined Sorokin's race. Which, to me, seemed like a harsh penalty as well. I mean, okay, his tires are on two and a half minutes out of the green flag instead of three. But, you know, give him a five-second tack onto a pit stop. Don't – why ten seconds stop and go? I mean, that effectively added 30 seconds to his race. I agree. That was a harsh, harsh penalty. Uh, you've seen much worse transgressions on the track get less severe penalty. But uh, I mean, Romain Grosjean was driving. <laughs> yes, and uh, he didn't hit anything, which is amazing. Or yeah. anyone else. So, well done, Romain. Yeah, so, you know, but I agree with you. Sergey, he was driving a much better race this time around, and then it was luck, and then, yeah, Lance wasn't in the spotlight, and Williams is in such a bad place. And Patty Lowe is getting my patience only because of you, Chris. So, <laughs> uh-huh. if 2019 comes around and we see any of this, I'm running, I'm very quickly run out of patience for this. This is Williams. This is just one of the greatest constructors out there, and they've just been dawdling around. I mean, I believe they're in last place in the Constructors' Championship. Well, you're going to love... Do you know... So Stroll had two punctures. Do you know how he picked up those punctures? <sighs> no. So so the rim was being overheated and causing the tyre to pop off. That's, oh. He didn't run over debris. They <laughs> just didn't have the... The brakes being called effectively. So, oh, yeah, man. Yeah, exactly. It's not good. They're having a nightmare of a season. You can only hope that they wake up soon and remember that they're still one of the most successful F1 teams in history. But right now, they're looking like a bunch of clowns. It was not a good weekend. Yeah, no, definitely so. But yeah, Honda had a good one. I mean, they finished seventh. There's uh, real speculation brewing that uh, they may be supplying Red Bull next season. So uh, things are on the up and up for Honda. So, um, I mean, but Gasly is clearly a class act. 
Yeah. Uh, both Leclerc and Gasly are now the two top French F1 drivers. There's no doubt about that. And uh, uh, and the STR is clearly a good chassis. I mean, they've it was it was quick last season, um, and it's still quick with a Honda in it, which is impressive. <laughs> Cute. No, it's it's the it, it's also quite clear that Brandon Hartley, for one reason or the other, I'm very careful to put blame on him specifically. But whatever they're doing for his season, it's just night and day between Gasly and Hartley in terms of performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think he'll... I'd be surprised if he sees that the season, knowing Red Bull's driver uh, demotion policy. So, yeah, unless you set the world on fire, you're pretty much out. So, yeah, he needs to deliver pretty quickly, I would suggest. Uh, and um, talking about Romain Grosjean, his drive apparently now is under threat. So Leclerc has done enough to interest uh, Ferrari, and the rumour is that he will be promoted to the Haas team at the expense of Grosjean. Yeah, I mean, you can't really fault God Magnussen, can you? No, he's done a good season so far. This, yeah. yeah, so, uh, you know, the top five was pretty straightforward because you had the Red Bull and then you had... Ferrari and Mercedes. There was some rumors going on about why uh, Hamilton was able to pass Ocon so easily. Speaking of passes going on at Monaco, that one caught a headline because I think uh, Ocon was saying there's an unwritten rule that you don't get in the way of the factory car. Well, he did have brand new rubber on it, didn't he, as well? So, but it, yeah, it does look a little suspicious given that the Force India was, was rapid. But look, it wouldn't be the first time. We've seen Ferrari team uh, call team orders on Ferrari-powered uh, uh, sub-teams before now, right? I mean, that's happened you know, many, many seasons. So it wouldn't be entirely uh, out of the ordinary. So, and, and you know, what, what Hamilton was trying to do was the undercut. So one way to make it places, the theory went, was that as soon as the hypersoft started to go off, you could come in and do an early pit stop and take advantage of you know, fresh compound rubber and put in a couple of quick laps and, 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 and to make a pass. But the Mercedes was never quite on the ultimate pace of the Ferrari and Red Bull, and he wasn't able to make it work. And in fact, I was more concerned that he was going to lose places uh, by trying that approach. Uh, in the end, it, it all worked out, and he got his podium. But um, but I, I did applaud Mercedes for the effort of at least trying to do trying to do something to gain a place. But uh, yeah, it didn't work. But yeah, I, th- I think conspiracy theorists. Have, I think they're on onto something probably because Force India is a team with not a lot of budget this year, is it? So they're probably not going to want to lose their works Mercedes uh, power units. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, a very intelligent way to say it. So Max Verstappen, he drove really well. He was making passes on the track and made up quite a few places, started last on the grid, finished ninth, got a couple points for his efforts. But as you said, a pretty basic mistake as mistakes go when you consider Monaco. And now that he's what, three, four year veteran? I mean, he's been around, been around a while now. He's running that excuse that he's a young driver yet is, is starting to wear thin. And just as you said at the top of the show, I mean, he's just been making one mistake after the other. I don't know. His performance at Monaco was hot and cold. Well, I mean, he had a race winning car, didn't he? It may have been Red Bull's, maybe the exception of Singapore, where Red Bull also is always very strong, uh, their best chance for a win without, you know, the sort of freak result we got in China, which was basically down to, to a clever pit stop under a safety car period. So a freak occurrence. So... Red Bull had the pace to win all weekend and you know Max and Daniel were very very close in in practice and you know he makes a mistake uh, that then ruins his whole weekend and he didn't need I think that's where the maturity comes in doesn't it he didn't need to be at the ultimate limit at that point I mean I think it was if he'd done it entirely on his own I think it would be a bigger mistake. There was extenuating circumstances that there was a car halfway through the, the swimming pool complex, which, you know, I think probably didn't help. And I think you could argue that he, he probably was a little distracted or maybe off his normal line, um, which is why maybe he, he turned in a little early. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's a mistake that you wouldn't expect a top driver of his caliber to make. And, um, you know, and it handed the race to, to Daniel on a plate, effectively, and he just squeaked into the points. 
I mean, it was a very measured and controlled race effort. And, uh, you know, so he demonstrated he could do 78 laps without hitting anything. And I think his team is starting to expect that now. They're expecting him to cut the errors out. But, you know, when you've got a teammate as quick as Daniel, if you just sort of drive at nine tenths, he's going to beat you every time. So it's a tricky situation to be in. You're under pressure not to make mistakes, but yet you know you have to be at the limit to try and beat your teammate. And this is exactly what Daniel did to, uh, to Sebastian Vettel, a four-time world champion, right? He put him under constant pressure. And Vettel didn't like the Red Bull when they were teammates. And, and Daniel made him look very average that season. And, and I think Max probably is, is aware that um, he's got a serious teammate there. He needs to drive, you know, drive well every weekend. Oh, that's very true. Yeah. I want to get right along to the crash. Yeah. Okay. So Charles Leclerc, he had a brake failure and kind of just plowed into the back of Hartley as a result. What I mean, was that just a matter of not accounting for proper brake cooling or was that just bad luck? I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the other, because th- actually I didn't think it was brake failure when I saw it. It looked to me like he got up on the curb and I thought that affected his braking um, because obviously it's painted and it may have been more slippery and, and therefore he didn't decelerate as quickly. And then obviously he kept trying to go to the right and hoping that Harley was going to, take the chicane and allow him to have space to, to take the sort of runoff and it never happened he, he caught Hartley too quickly so I wasn't convinced about that because brake failure normally you see a cloud of carbon dust right before the brakes go and I don't remember seeing that in the replay but that's what Salva said so I'll take them at their word but uh, yeah I mean it's uh, it was they run they, you know, they want to minimize the brake cooling as Williams demonstrated, and uh, and so you you know you can be on the edge, and if depending on how the driver's got the brake bias set up, then you can yeah you could I mean it was it was late on right lap seventy, so seems fair enough. Yeah, exactly right. It was an unfortunate incident that tainted an otherwise yet another strong drive from Leclerc, and just as you were saying earlier, he's establishing himself as a strong rookie, one to pay close attention to. You know, it was unfortunate uh, that it happened, but I don't think anyone will fault him. It's ironic because to me, it looked exactly like brake failure. One tire was completely locked up. The other one was rolling along and he was decelerating not much better than half of the force that you normally get. To me, it was very, I'm not saying I would have predicted brake failure just by glancing at it for two seconds, but their explanation seemed right on line with what I saw. But uh, yeah. So Hartley was unlucky to just get collected in that, and uh, Leclerc was unlucky to have that failure. Yeah, but I think, to your point, Hartley hadn't been setting, setting rapid times compared to uh, his teammate Gasly, was he? He was, pretty, he was out of the points when he got collected, so it was a little bit of minor scuffling. I mean, it was exciting. You always get to see a crash in Monaco. No one ended up in the harbour, though, unfortunately, like the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> Fernando Alonso. Could only make it 52 laps. His gearbox failed, right? Yeah. I don't know. Is there much to say about that? I mean, those were no powertrains. I hear that uh, the McLaren chassis would actually be number one in the championship if only they had a better engine like the Honda. So I don't know how long the engine deal is going to last between McLaren and Renault. Well, uh, Alonso was another one like Lewis that was particularly vociferous in there in their uh, damning condemnation of uh, of the Monaco Grand Prix. Uh, and you kind of got the feeling that he, pref- he, he wished he'd gone to the 500 instead, which, you know, if he's starting to get to that point, I, I think his, his future in Formula One is limited. I think this could be a swan song. I mean, if he doesn't believe that there's a seat for him at Red Bull, Ferrari, Mercedes, and it appears not to be, um, then I and I don't see McLaren offering him a race-winning car in the next season or two. Do you? I mean, with whatever engine in it, if you put a Mercedes in there or a Ferrari engine, they're not going to beat the works team. That's very obvious. They're they're a way off Red Bull pace. It was at least seven tenths of a second around Monaco based on the quality pace, as, as far as I remember. No, I agree with you. I think it's 2021 when the when a rules change comes again. You know, yeah. a, a bigger rules change comes again, and that's McLaren's chance to resort things out and uh, work their way towards the front. So maybe he's had enough. Maybe he's had enough running midfield. I don't know. But that's pretty, you know, I was surprised to hear his comments um, post-race, actually, which is a shame. 
I mean, maybe, you know, if he could, he'd run all the race series in the world simultaneously. <laughs> he yeah. racing that much. He's going in that, that direction, certainly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we used to have weekends where people would try and double up with uh, the Indy 500 and then whatever NASCAR 600 they happened to be running, right? And they used yeah. to, people would dash from one race to the other. Maybe that's what he needs to try and do, double up, do the 500 and the Monaco Grand Prix. Maybe we need to bring Concord back out of retirement so we can <laughs> get across the Atlantic. Yeah, quickly. sure. Let's. Uh, Fernando can be the first one to try to do all three uh, in, a, in a day. So, all Honda powered, hopefully. Right, right. So it was uh, it was Lewis Hamilton that retained the lead in the World Championship. Uh, Sebastian Vettel did close in ever so slightly. It was 17 points. Vettel was behind. Now it is just 14. Daniel Ricciardo is now third in the championship with 72 points. And Botas is not far behind. Four behind with 68 points. Raikkonen is fifth with 60. Verstappen all the way down in sixth with 35 points. And that's a big drop-off. And from there... You just uh, you have thirty five to thirty two to Fernando Alonso, twenty six to Hulkenberg, twenty for Carlos Sainz Jr. and Kevin Magnussen with nineteen points. And wouldn't you know it, it's also Haas Ferrari with nineteen points. So I thought it was interesting that people were now saying that Daniel's now a contender for the championship. What do you make of that? Because I I don't agree with that. I think you know clearly the Ferrari and the Mercedes have been quicker than the Red Bull on a normal track. Um, and quick enough to, to keep them off the podium, Red Bull, at most races, if things go according to plan. So I'm not sure how, you know, he's won two races, it's the same number as the other two, but it doesn't automatically make him a championship contender in my book. Uh, yeah, no, I agree with you completely. I think when it comes to these things, people have awfully short memories, and they don't tend to be terribly good at math. I <laughs> I know there were several times... Last year, when uh, you know Sebastian Vettel had a twenty-point lead over Lewis Hamilton, you know in the first third of the season, and they're like, "Well, that's that. If if Hamilton can't can't win this race, well, it's over." And uh, yeah, we all know how that ended. So you know, people just tend to there's a tendency to just jump the gun and see a trend arrive instantly because they want to be the first to spot the trend. Do you know? Does that make sense? So yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's my that's my opinion on that. But uh, you mentioned that Fernando may have preferred to have run the Indy 500. Well, wouldn't you know it? That happened on the same day, and I have race results. And it was just a great day for Australia, as you mentioned right at the top of the show, because fellow Aussie Will Power won the Indianapolis 500 and made a darn decent chunk of change in the process. 2525 dollars for winning the race. Well, how much did Daniel win? He didn't tell us that. Oh, how much did Daniel Ricciardo win? <laughs> I, he got I don't to go know. swimming in the Red Bull pool. That's hardly fair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, you, you know, the salaries are a little bit different between IndyCar and Formula One. I'll say that much. But That's uh, true, yeah. It was uh, Ed Carpenter, who is the oval specialist, that finished second. That was his best finish of the Indy 500 yet. Scott Dixon, former Indy 500, he was third. Alexander Rossi, uh, former Formula One driver, was fourth. Ryan Hunter Ray, fifth. Simon Paginot, sixth. Carlos Munoz, seventh. Who was, it was a good run for him because uh, that, that was the first car there that was not a part of a a bigger team, although you could argue whether Ed Carpenter's team's big or not. Um, and it was uh, Joseph Newgarden, eighth, Robert Wickens, another strong rookie, ninth, Graham Ray Hall, tenth. And I'm going to just skip down a few. It was, yes, Danica Patrick in 30th place. Um, was she the top lady then? Well, she was. She was also the yeah, only yeah. lady. And she, she was. Class. She was also. Finishing her racing career at the Indianapolis 500. Now and she'll be back. Well, until now, that is nothing other than speculation. I am going to go out on a limb here and say, despite the fact that it's the greatest spectacle in racing, and despite the fact that it is one of the three biggest races of the year, the other two being the 24 Hours of Le Mans and the Monaco Grand Prix, that you still did not watch the Indianapolis 500. You're right in the sense that I didn't watch it live, but I 
did watch the highlights. So, um, so yeah, I, I mean, I was fascinated uh, to see that Stefan Wilson was leading after the last uh, safety car period. Uh, so I assume he's related to Justin in some way, is he? He is the brother, yes. Oh, well, that's cool. So, I mean, him and Jack Harvey were was British one too until I remember they had to refuel the cars. <laughs> well, you know, there was, there was saying, well, they don't have the fuel to make it, but then there was a yellow flag, another late yellow, mm-hmm. and they were staying out, and there was hopes that, oh, gosh, they might be able to make it. And I actually was really crossing my fingers that Stefan could win the race because I was always such a huge fan of Justin. Yeah, he was a nice bloke, yeah. Yeah, definitely so. And uh, you know, always he was he was a racer's racer. He always found a way to be competitive despite the you know, the size of the team's budget or whatever. He was very clever in that way. Yeah, and he never had a lot of money, and he was very creative in funding his his racing through F one and then I think an IndyCar. So he you know he grafted to to stay in the sport and to race at that level. Absolutely um, right. Yeah. And he won. He 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 was a, he was a successful driver. So to see Stefan there and be able to kind of relive that legacy was really encouraging. And then just as you say, they just last couple laps. I think it was seven or man, no less than five laps to go, and they just ducked in for a splash. And all of a sudden, it was Will Powers to lose, and he kind of just yeah. coasted in. It was pretty incredible. Yeah, he had it well under control, didn't he? I mean, he won by what, more than three seconds in the end, so pretty easy win. Um, but, um, so is Wilson doing a full season, or is it uh, no, no, a one-off no. Indy race? No, 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 it is a one-off Indy race. And, okay. you know, this year's Indy 500 had a lot of encouraging figures. My favorite is the fact that the bump day was back. Um, mm. So it's 33-car entry for the Indianapolis 500, and for many years they've had to get kind of creative to even fill all 33 cars. This was, I think, since 2011. That was the first time there was any kind of bump day. There were 35 entrants for the 33-car field. So that was really encouraging to see. And uh, bump day brought us a big surprise. One of the full-time, full-time drivers, James Hinchcliffe, didn't qualify. And it turned out to be that he had a loose wheel speed sensor that was causing a crazy vibration. That was, of course, unsettling, but also slowing the car down a bit. And we're talking about maybe a mile or two mile an hour or two but that's enough to be the difference between you know 25th and 34th and uh that's that's how it went to see penske win his 17th indianapolis 500 wow is that a record oh yes i mean yeah by a healthy margin exactly to see him just to continue to always have a strong finish there were a lot of great stories i didn't mention him but Elio Castroneves, he was also, he was back in the 500. He was running very well. He was in top five for a long time, but he actually crashed out in a very similar way to Danica Patrick. And similar to Monaco in a way, there was controversy about grip from the cars and whether something needs to be changed. In Monaco, it was tire. And in Indianapolis 500, there was a new aerodynamics package that was low, you know, less downforce. And then on top of that, they had near record highs that was humid and uh, in the 90s on the track. And, of course, track temp was very hot. So if you have humid, hot air that's less dense and then you have less downforce to push the car down, they were touchier than they've been in a long time. And the vast majority of the yellow flags were caused not by two guys bumping into each other, but by single car accidents losing it. And uh, backing into the wall. Yeah, she was she was on her own, wasn't she? I saw her crash, and, and just the car got away really quickly on her, and uh, and it was all over. Sadly, it, but I did find the um, and that but that was true for Danica and several others. That was okay. not that was it, several others, including Elio Castroneves, crashed out that way. I did find last year's Indy 500 winners crash quite amusing, though. Sato's <laughs> just yes. innocuous driving into the back of a slower car. I don't quite know what he was doing there. But uh, Well, the slower car, that's funny you mentioned that. That slower car was, um, a, well, I've got to be careful. I think he was a rookie. And his name was uh, James Davison. And he was driving miserably slow. And he was effectively a roadblock because his car was loose and you don't want to be in a loose car at greater than 200 miles an hour and 
So he was a good 15, 20 miles an hour, which is a massive difference uh, in close racing on a super speedway. He was 15, 20 miles an hour slower yeah. than most traffic. And Takuma Sato said in an interview afterwards, he said, I was on the brakes and I couldn't stop. And you can't, <laughs> you can't really change your line much when you're heading towards the apex at 215. So, yeah, there wasn't much Takuma Sato could do. Well, I'm surprised they allowed him, uh, Davison, to run at that pace without uh, waving him in. Giving him, what was the old orange and black flag, isn't it? Uh, yeah, the meatball, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. so, it, you know, that was a strange one. And, and there was also the commentators were saying, I don't know why the team didn't bring him in and try to get it sorted out. Because, again, you know, we were just talking about bump day. Davison qualified. There was something that made the car off. It wasn't... <laughs> It wasn't that this driver wasn't up to it necessarily. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So going back to Danica for a second then. So what, why is she hanging up her helmet? I mean, she's had quite the career and she's obviously still getting uh, decent drives. So I would I would have thought she – because she's definitely a couple more 500s. She's got a chance to win the race. And she I mean, she came pretty close. Didn't she come second one year? I mean, she uh, certainly had third a bunch or of top tens. Yeah, yeah. I mean – and obviously, she won in IndyCar races uh, before she went off to NASCAR. Well, she, she won. Won, she won one IndyCar race, and it was a fuel mileage run. She won in Japan. Um, yeah, but she was competitive, wasn't she? It she, wasn't like she, she was, was there to make up the numbers. She was. She was the most successful of all the recent female drivers by by a big margin, I would say. In IndyCar specifically, yes, yeah. yeah. She she came through the ranks. Uh, she was in uh, Toyota Atlantics around the same time. Uh, Catherine Leg was, mm-hmm. and Catherine Leg was much more successful than she was, despite Danica being in a, in a bigger team. So, well, I know you're a fan of Leg, but I mean, Catherine never. Uh, I mean, obviously the, it's team dependent, but she never was able to emulate uh, her performance in the lower Formula IndyCar level, was she? No, that's that's absolutely a fair point. But Danica Patrick, uh, she's been doing NASCAR for quite a while, and then made the decision that this year would be her last and that she's going to run the Daytona 500 in NASCAR and the Indianapolis 500. Mm-hmm. And she ran Daytona, and now she's run. So she just kind of wanted to go out in a splash and run the two biggest races of the two biggest American series to end her career. And, I mean, to me, that's if you have the ability to attract marketing and sponsorship for such a way to end your career, to me, that's there's certainly worse ways to do it. Well, she, you know, unfortunately, there haven't been more women drivers come through into the top echelons of our sport. I mean, that's certainly something I would like to see more of. You know, you would have hoped that she would have opened the door to more, you know, top top female drivers. Uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, obviously, it's so sponsorship dependent. It's hard to make the breakthrough, whoever you are, unless you've got a lot of money behind you. And I know she's been very successful in, in getting advertisers uh, to pay her way, you know, since she broke through. But it's sad that, you know, if she's going out, then what, we're back to an all-male field for both NASCAR and IndyCar. Is that true? Or is there anyone else, uh, in uh, any, any women running in NASCAR this season? I don't know about NASCAR, uh, but I do know, like, as a, for, for instance, uh, Pippa Mann uh, mm-hmm. attempted to run the Indy 500, but she was she was the other person that was bumped. On bump day, yeah. so, so there's other women that take take efforts, and you know Sarah Fisher uh, did for quite a long time, and yeah. you know I, Catherine Lake. I interviewed her recently, and she still expressed extreme desire to be a part of it. If things work out, she may still yet be able to pull that off. So, I, and I'm not trying to say those are the only options. I, I know that there's more. I think Danica Patrick was successful in getting more attention to female drivers but we might still have to wait a couple years yet as they get through the carding ranks and the lower formula before we start seeing them pop up more often Mm. yeah it was it was a great day of racing this past sunday was it was a marvelous day of racing for the australians amongst us and (laughs) i'm i'm really glad that we got a chance to talk about it and you'll be happy to know that the discussion is not over And it's not actually time for trivia just yet either. It is time for me to read a couple of comments to you. 
one uh, comment from John Matthews. Uh, he wrote, great interview with Freddie Hunt. I didn't see his dad race, but I started following Formula One when James was teamed with Murray Walker on BBC coverage. Freddie sounds like his dad. I wish him success in his racing career. And that was from John Matthew. Thank you, John. And uh, that was my uh, Motorsport Miscellany podcast, the last one round, where I got a chance to talk with Freddie, a lovely person to speak with, and fascinating to hear his perspective on things. And yeah, there's a, we're, we're going to keep up with uh, his career. Not quite formula one level yet for him but we'll see we'll see what he can pull off and the second comment is um actually from facebook and i normally don't uh read facebook comments but this one from jason brown was well worth it he said really liking the back and forth with the new lineup christopher roche that's you so there is comments and commentary that you sir are liked and respected and i wanted to give you that warm fuzzy before we uh, before we got too far, well, I don't think he said anything about respect, did he? So, uh, but the back and forth, the comments, very much appreciated. Even if you think some an imbecile. Oh no, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it's the exact opposite of what you just said. But uh, because I'm the one that puts this together, he has to deal with it. Anyway, <laughs> we do also have a trivia question: the Spanish Grand Prix. This was the last trivia question. The Spanish Grand Prix was has been held at the Catalunya Circuit since 1991, but it was actually held at four other venues since 1950. Among those four, which one held the race most often, and who won the inaugural race at that venue? And uh, Chris, you did give a noble effort, and uh, in that failed and, miserably. Yes. But, yes. Well, I wouldn't say miserably, but you were not quite right. It was, <laughs> it was uh, Yarma. And that is J-A-R-A-M-A. So Yarama, maybe, I don't know. Uh, J-A-R-A-M-A held the race nine times between 1967 and 1981. And it was, drum roll, Jim Clark that won the the inaugural event in 1967 in a Lotus Cosworth. Epic driver, epic car. Yeah. Epic uh, engine. Epic Scott, if I'm correct. He was a Scot. He was a farmer. Scottish farmer. Yes, because farmers, they have those tractors, and that makes them excellent with hand-eye coordination. Well, he could drive anything, Jim, back in those days, right? They, all, the, all the top drivers would drive in many different formula, and uh, a little bit like Alonso's trying to emulate. And, you know, there's some classic pictures you can look up of him in a Lotus Cortina around Brands Hatch on three wheels. And, uh, I mean... Unfortunately, Jim's way before my time, but I've read enough about him to know that he was one of the true greats of F1 and motorsport uh, over the over the decades. Yeah, and oh, actually, he, he gets re- regularly. Yeah, sorry, regularly no, crops up in in the top, you know, top five of all time greats of Formula One. So, oh well, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, he's always on that list. He's one of those perennial greats that really stood out amongst greats. So, new question time. Mm. It. The Indianapolis 500 was part of the Formula One World Championship between 1950 and 1960. In 1961, Formula One came to the U.S. for its own Grand Prix at Watkins Glen. But that was actually the third U.S. Grand Prix venue. When and where were the first two United States Grand Prix? And I have a hint for you this time, and this is a legitimate one. It was the same driver that won both of those events. So when you say Grand Prix, uh, are you talking about Formula One motor racing or Grand Prix motor racing? Uh, since 1950, Formula okay, One. So Formula One, all right. Yes. So two venues, not including not including the Indy, or one venue that held two races, but not, not, not so, Watkins Glen, not Indy. So, yeah, so well, there were... There were uh, in my defense, it's quite late while we're recording this. It, it, this is very true. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think I know the answer, so I'm not sure if we should draw this out either. Well, and it, yeah, no, but it's worth clarification. So this, the third different venue was Watkins Glen in 1961. So there were okay. two different venues for the United States Grand Prix, and that was separate from the Indianapolis 500. And uh, so I want to know where those events were and when they took place. And 
that is going to be answered for the next uh, podcast, which will be covering uh, the Canadian Grand Prix because the seventh round of Formula One is June 10th at the Canadian Grand Prix. The seventh round of IndyCar is just a couple days away. That is uh, Saturday, June 2nd here in Detroit. And the eighth round of IndyCar will be the 3rd of June, uh, also in Detroit. It's called the Duel in Detroit. And it's two full-length IndyCar races that happen, one on Saturday, one on Sunday. And to that end, uh, the IMSA race, they also run on Saturday as well in Detroit. So that's also the uh, the 2nd of June, and that's their fifth event. And the second round of the World Endurance Championship is the 24 Hours of Le Mans, and it's the 16th of June. That is going to be really something. that That's a race I'm quite curious to see how it plays out because it's going to be Toyota and then no one else in terms of LMP1 factory competition. So how is that going to play out and how is it going to be perceived? It's going to be very interesting. But I want to thank you for listening please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars and check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Chris, as always, it's wonderful to talk to you. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. I heard it. No, there's this. Uh, oh, I w- well, I was uh, with some Brits. I was with some Jaguar folks. They were, and someone was like, oh. "Sorry, I don't think there are Jaguar folks. <laughs> you you Jag- resolutely are Jesus. Jaguar oh, folks." Oh, good lord! Them. We're oh, this is going to be a good show. I know it. Jaguar <laughs> folks, and uh, uh-huh. and they were saying, "Oh, it's totally. It's something. You'll see. It's chalk and cheese." I'm like, "Good gravy! What is chalk and cheese?" <laughs> <Good gravy>. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. Okay.